You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Public safety has been front and center in recent months with politicians at all levels feeling the pressure to do something. As Richard Zussman reports tonight, two key B.C. cabinet ministers are joining forces with their counterparts across the country to press Ottawa for action. Oh. Under pressure at home, two of B.C.'s most senior ministers have hit the road looking for answers. Attorney General Murray Rankin and Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth in the Halifax area Wednesday, meeting with other public safety ministers from across Canada, asking Ottawa for help. We're going to have a unified front when we go to the federal government and try to get their assistance to address this problem. All provinces have experienced a rapid increase in vandalism, random assaults and repeat offences. BC asking for review on bail conditions and federal funding to support mental health and addictions and complex care housing. There were unintended consequences from the criminal justice reform that no one would have predicted. There's a growing sense in many BC communities government is slow to react on these growing concerns. For example, police frustrated repeat offender Mohammed Majidpour is now out on bail after multiple high-profile incidents, including a possible racially motivated attack on a woman in downtown Vancouver. It is completely unacceptable that individuals such as yesterday are, you know, out doing the same crime again. Government's outrage, another example to the B.C. Liberals, the province is passing the buck and dragging its heels on the issue. Their second term, they've been there for five years. I've been saying for years now that David Eby has overseen a catch and release system. The B.C. Liberals have been pushing the province to push Crown Council to hold people behind bars a little bit longer when they're chronic offenders, something the government says could have substantial unintended consequences. If there were to be directives, something that's been studied in the past and we're studying now, the question is, would they be upheld in court? Would they be seen as inconsistent with what the charter requires? When Wally Opel was Attorney General, he attempted to tackle what he sees as the big issue in the system, speeding up court cases, which would limit or potentially eliminate time between release on bail and conviction. If there's one thing our system really needs, is to speed the process up. And I think the Parliament of Canada can do that by putting time limits upon which cases come to court. But with every smashed window or random assault, the time seems to tick faster to get solutions to this growing problem. Richard from Global News, Victoria. Well, Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the growing concern around this topic. Uh, mm. Keith, most people would agree change was needed yesterday, but it, it doesn't happen overnight, of course. So what kind of timeline are we looking at here? Yeah, it's often said the wheels of justice turn very slowly, but the wheels of justice reform can turn even slower. It can take years to have criminal code changes, and of course a lot depends on court rulings, a point made by Murray Rankin and Richard Story. Uh, but Mike Farmer also points out there's many levels of government involved here, but Wally Opel, the former Attorney General, says long-term change will take some time to, to carry out, but many things can be done short-term to deal with the crisis we're currently witnessing. Here's the two of them. This is a multi-pronged approach that's required at all levels of government. The real solution is going to take some time because we have to, prevention always takes longer. But as far as the immediate problems that are, are, are afflicting our citizens out in the streets of random crime, that can be done relatively quickly.
So it's going to be interesting to see, and I heard this reference in Richard's story about uh, Murray Rankin having the power under the Crown Council Act to issue spe special directives to Crown Council uh, when it comes to certain issues, notably bail conditions. And right now, Murray Rankin has opened the door saying he's studying that. Uh, courts may ultimately rule against it, but I think the pressure is going to be mounting on the government to do something on that front. Look for the B.C. Liberals to keep this issue on the front burner when the House resumes next week with question periods starting on Monday. I'm sure they will. All right, thanks for that. Keith Baldry and Victoria. The couple who pleaded guilty to mischief in a racist incident at a Richmond coffee shop were back in court today for the second day of their sentencing hearing. As Grace Key reports, Michelle Berthiome and Astrid Sakreve objected to the impact statements read, saying the community is biased. Michelle Jean-Jacques Berthume and Astrid Maria Sikrev arrived at the Richmond Courthouse for the last day of their sentencing hearing after entering a guilty plea of mischief. Any comment? The two are representing themselves. In court, they objected to five community impact statements being admitted into evidence. Berthume saying they were from Chinese organizations. There was total bias with mention of a hate crime when we never got charged with a hate crime, adding, we are going to be sacrificed for the good of the Chinese community. At one point, he told his wife, will you be quiet, please, when she said something to him. In the end, the judge allowed the statements to be submitted. The mischief charge stems from an incident in March 2021 at a Richmond coffee shop where they uttered racial slurs, threw coffee to the ground and a cup at a worker. The two were asked to move to comply with COVID protocols. Their views don't appear to have changed much since last year. In the past, they haven't held back on their views of Asians outside of court. I prefer to have English or French or German than have a Chinese in this country. Or even inside the courtroom. On Tuesday, they could be heard saying, I don't care for Chinese people and go back to China and take the virus with you. On this final day, Berthume told the judge people have been spitting on their cars and that the community shouldn't fear them. They are the ones who fear the community. For me, for our organization, we just hope the judgment could, you know, show a clear message to the public that there is no room for the racism in the Canada. Move away, move away. The two had nothing to say as they left court. Crown is asking for a suspended sentence with 18 months probation and 100 hours of community service. The two are asking for absolute discharge. A sentencing date hasn't been set yet. Grace Key, Global News. Well, police in the central Okanagan are investigating several incidents involving disturbing racist graffiti. A Kelowna Middle School was vandalized with racist remarks, swastikas and a number of profanities. The signs of local municipal election candidates have also been targeted along with some city-owned properties. In my experience, it, it, it pops up every once in a while. Um, sometimes it's a one-off. We've had a few this, this week, week and a half that are... I don't know if they're related, but it's been multiple attacks, graffiti attacks, and so we're just wondering why. We're trying to figure out why. Charges will be uh, forwarded to Crown if we can uh, gather enough evidence. Police are asking any witnesses or anyone who might have video to come forward. The sentencing hearing for the Dutch man who harassed BC teenager Amanda Todd before she took her own life has heard defense lawyers ask for half the sentence the Crown has requested. Aidan Coban was found guilty of several charges, including extortion, harassment and possession of child pornography. 
Romina Dea has the details, including reaction to the defense arguments from Amanda's mother. 15-year-old Amanda Todd begged her tormentor to stop, but the sexual blackmail continued. Suffering was the motivation for Coben's actions, said Louise Kenworthy, lead Crown Counsel. His goal appears to have been to destroy the life of this adolescent girl. Crown and defense far apart on jail time. Crown asking for a total sentence of 12 years on all charges. Defense's position, six years. Amanda's mother, dumbfounded. I do not know how defense lawyers sleep at night, right? If they have children, if they have grandchildren, if they have nieces and nephews, these are our kids we're talking about. Defense counsel Elliot Holzman telling the court defense does not dispute the offending caused actual harm to Miss Todd. Mr. Coben comes before the court as a first-time offender in Canada. There is one victim in this case. The child pornography materials used in the sextortion scheme were very small in number compared to heinous cases across this country. You're trying to get a lesser sentence for someone who predates and preys on children, extorts them, lures them, grooms them, distributes them. To me, it's astounding. Defense told the court Coben has strong family connections in the Netherlands. His mother is sending clothes and money to Canada. Letters of support from Coben's mother, sister and a friend were submitted to the judge. Coben is currently serving almost 11 years in the Netherlands for similar crimes against 33 children, some as young as 9 and 10. He must be returned home within 45 days of the sentence in Amanda's case. It's unclear what Dutch authorities will do with his Canadian sentence. Romina Dea, Global News. Two teens in Vancouver had to go to hospital as a result of a fight over a vape pen. It happened at the bus stop at West 41st and Dunbar around 8.30 last evening. Police say several witnesses called to report two people fighting. When officers got to the scene, they found a 17-year-old boy bleeding profusely from stab wounds. He was rushed to hospital with life-threatening wounds but is now expected to survive. Police later found an 18-year-old suspect in East Vancouver who also needed to be hospitalized for his injuries. The investigation continues. There is much more to a Vancouver arrest video than meets the eye. That's the message from VPD whose officers are explaining their actions today. A bystander recorded the interaction and posted the video to social media suggesting the police went too far. But police say the man was being arrested for criminal harassment after allegedly breaching numerous bail conditions and a protection order. Catherine Urquhart reports. When members of the Vancouver Police Department pulled a man from his car outside Trout Lake Community Centre, it alarmed those watching. Get off him! He was forced to the ground and handcuffed as his young child watched. But police say there was much more to this story and their actions were warranted. They say he didn't comply with directions to exit the vehicle and his history includes barricading himself in a house. That required emergency response team, police negotiators, a warrant issued by a judge in order for us to go in and make that arrest. And given other information that we have about 
um, the escalation in his behavior. We were not going to let that man get back in the vehicle. The man, who we are not naming to protect the child, was already facing charges of criminal harassment connected to domestic violence, breach of conditions, and now is also charged with obstructing a peace officer. This was a situation that escalated because of his behavior. Had he complied, had he complied with the police demands when they were executing or when they were executing their lawful duties, none of this would have happened. In a second video, the man references his employment. Absolutely not! I'm a practitioner! In fact, Global News has learned he is not a practitioner as his license was revoked by his practice's governing body amid allegations of sexual assault by two of his clients. Surrey RCMP say they investigated, but there was not sufficient evidence to proceed with charges. Back at the scene, the man's car was still there as he awaited yet another appearance before a judge. Police say the child was safely returned to the mother. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A major shift in real estate sales. The number of buyers is dramatically lower, and there's one region where prices seem to be plummeting too, where you can get a relative bargain. Next on the News Hour. And Keith, I'm sorry, you're part of this by in inviting this man here. He's a candidate. The nuttiest civic election campaign ever. Why the 1974 race for mayor was unlike anything anyone had ever seen later. Plus, we got weights and fish. There we go. Cheating fishermen in deep trouble. After this video went viral, the punishment they could face coming up tonight. Right now, though, despite a dramatic drop in overall sales, average home prices in B.C. have only gone up, except in one very specific area. Kamal Karamali shows us why the Fraser Valley might be a bargain for potential buyers if you can afford the mortgage. So this is a five-bed, three-bath house. Two this Abbotsford home on the market for about a million dollars. But realtor Connor Kelly says seven months ago, it would be going for a lot more, about three to $400,000 more. Seven months ago, if you told me that this was going to happen, I would be like that. You're crazy. And that's being seen across the Fraser Valley and even in Surrey. It's pretty much the same across all municipalities in the Fraser Valley. However, on a percentage basis, the losses would be bigger the further you go out east. In February of this year, the average price of a detached home in Abbotsford was roughly $1.5 million. In Mission, $1.3 million. And in Surrey, just over $1.8 million. Fast forward seven months later and the average cost has plummeted nearly half a million dollars. Just over a million in Abbotsford, Mission now at nearly $900,000 and close to 1.4 million in Surrey. Vancouver also seeing a dip in housing prices, but not as drastic as the Fraser Valley, which used to be in high demand during the pandemic. A home had to be a school, an office, a rec center. So a lot of people you know, could find that space much more affordably in places like Chilliwack or Abbotsford or, or Langley. Uh, and now, uh, post-pandemic, that affordability just isn't there anymore. The price drop because of higher mortgage rates. People no longer willing to borrow from the bank, significantly cooling the housing market. That's how unprecedented these changes are. And, and that's being reflected in the market. I think their goal was to actually shock uh, all markets. They want consumers to stop uh, borrowing and spending. So for now, buyers and sellers both expected to sit idle, and so will homes currently on the market. Without a real uh, increase in supply, 
uh, we're not going to see the same amount of, of downward pressure on, on prices going forward. Experts are divided on when interest rates will go down. Some predicting rates will remain at least above 5% for the foreseeable future. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Fernie Councillor Morgan Pulsifer has bid an emotional goodbye to the city where he was born and raised. Good riddance. I am so excited to be out of this room. Pulsifer used his last address to council to lament the state of affairs in Fernie and the abuse elected officials are subject to. With municipal elections just around the corner, current councillors are wrapping up their terms. Pulsifer also lamented the cost of living in Fernie. He moved out of town two years ago, pushed out by the high cost of housing, which has ballooned there in recent years. Even the cheapest undeveloped lots on the edge of town sell for well over $350,000. I'm not looking for a pat on the back. I'm just telling you like it is. It's very difficult to make a go of having a family and earning a living in this community. And I hope the folks at home listening know how sincere I am about that because I lived that experience and I tried my best. And Fernie's mayor tweeted after the meeting saying Pulsifer's comments are at the same time heartbreaking and infuriating. Coming up, political culture shift. I see the holes in our system. Indigenous candidates join the campaign to get elected, proposing solutions to complex problems. And the push for better diagnosis and treatment of endometriosis and why so many women are still suffering. Traffic is looking much better over here tonight at the Alex Fraser Bridge. It was a very busy afternoon commute with three separate problems. Today's Lotto 649 Gold Ball jackpot is $26 million, plus the classic $5 million jackpot, two jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Accountability and transparency have become major issues in Surrey this civic election with Almost all parties promising change. Aaron MacArthur talked to Surrey's mayoral candidates, except for one. Two weeks before the election, Surrey City Councillors were sitting, voting on a considerable package of land use items, including rezoning around future SkyTrain stations. Opposition politicians seething about such essential decisions dropped in their laps seemingly at the 11th hour. Where else can you imagine a meeting being held two days before voting starts and he passes 45 land use projects? The issue of government accountability comes up frequently at the municipal level. According to political observers, the last four years have been a challenge in terms of transparency in Surrey, culminating with Doug McCallum's criminal charges. Doug McCallum in the, the mayor's chair, at least this time around, has been really marked by a steady resistance, increasing the resistance to different kinds of scrutiny. According to candidates, the list of ways public accountability at City Hall has been eroded is lengthy. A group of senior citizens barred from council chambers. Speakers at public hearings cut off with regularity. The ethics commissioner muzzled six months prior to the election and resident advisory committees all but dissolved. 
all but one of the candidates vying for Surrey's top job, have platform planks that address accountability. And, and I think we need to have a, a, a transparent, open public inquiry around those types of issues. We're absolutely bringing the Ethics Commissioner back. That is going to be a, a really important pivot for us to do and make sure that people understand what conflict of interest is. Whether it is on transportation, whether it's on public safety, whether it's on ethics, you know, whether it's on agriculture, you name it, we can have those committees. Another four years. The one party that hasn't put forward anything is the Safe Surrey Coalition. Doug McCallum, again, refusing several requests for interviews about the issue. Election day is October 15th. Doug McCallum's trial for mischief begins two weeks later. Aaron McCarthy, Global News. Well, some candidates in Vancouver are putting aside their political issues to focus on the greater good. As Amadagahi reports, there are a number of Indigenous candidates running for office this fall. And they hope to make a difference in the community. Reconciliation is listening to the troubles that we're going through. Taking a short break from exhausting campaigns. It gives me so much hope to see other Indigenous candidates putting their names forward. On this Wednesday morning, party lines were briefly set aside for a conversation focusing not on the differences, but on what these candidates have in common. Before we're even in office, we're learning to work together for the same thing. It's not enough to just say that um, this is a city of reconciliation. We need to have Indigenous representation at the table now. The Indigenous voices are not being uplifted, yet everyone wore orange last week. So we need it to go from theoretical into action. And the way that's going to happen is through Indigenous leadership. I'm ready to decolonize City Hall. <laughs> Never before has the city seen so many Indigenous candidates running in a municipal election, according to those here. When you have representation, you have lived experience, you have community experience, professional experience, academic experience about how city decisions impact Indigenous peoples. These are voices and experiences that have, have been missing in the last four years of City Council. I've slept in these parks, so I've got a lot of ideas about how, how to help people that are sleeping out on the street. All of us want to help to be a voice for the people who don't have a voice themselves. The candidates here say they will bring to City Hall with them unique ideas and solutions to some of the most critical issues facing many in the city of Vancouver. A different perspective on how we can make decisions as, as a community, as a city, how we can try to work in a more cooperative way in a more inclusive and equitable way. To start reconciliation, you actually need to start voting for Indigenous candidates. Your voice does count. Believe me, it counts. Emadagahi, Global News. Coming up, watch out for a new charge on your restaurant bill. We were quite upset. Solving the mystery of the EHB and why customers are being asked to pay it. And how the BC SPCA is hoping this little kitten will steal your heart. Decision 2022, from the first ballot cast to the final tally. All the issues, all the players. Full election coverage, Saturday, October 15th, 8 to 11.30 p.m. on Global BC. Decision 2022. Good evening. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel. Two lanes in both directions and just a little bit of volume southbound at the north end. 
Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Take a close look at your restaurant bill next time you eat out. It might contain a surprise you didn't budget for. A Victoria woman says she was puzzled by a small fee added to her restaurant bill and found out it's there to help pay for health benefits for employees. Kylie Stanton reports. We were quite upset. Dining out, then paying the bill can be a little painful these days. But in this case, it wasn't the price. It's only $1.25. But rather, the principal. I just find it quite um, disgusting, actually. Anne Hardy and her husband had just finished up lunch at Ten Acres Restaurant when they noticed an additional charge on their bill. It was labeled EHB, which they soon learned stood for Employee Health Benefits. And I said, are we supposed to pay for that? And she said, yes. In a statement, Ten Acres Restaurant explained the fee, saying back in 2020, health benefits were downloaded from the B.C. government to employers. Then in 2021, five-day sick pay was enacted. In order for employees to enjoy these benefits, the cost needed to be passed on and a 2% charge on every bill almost covers it. Generally, add-on fees, uh, whether it's restaurants or anywhere else, um, aren't that well accepted by the public. That may explain why it's not a widespread trend in the industry. Instead, most restaurants are rolling these additional costs into the price of the food itself. The cost to the consumer is all the same in the end. But Tostenson warns there's a limit to what people are willing or able to pay. From the government point of view, these are great things. When you have a healthcare system that's being paid for ubiquitously, uh, five-day leave, it all sounds great, but there's only one consumer. And we have to be very conscious of that. In a statement, BC Jobs Minister Ravi Kalon said there are rules that govern any kind of surcharge to ensure clarity for customers. But according to 10 Acres, after eight months of charging the fee, it's only had a handful of people upset with it once they were told what it was used for. Going on to say, if a customer is unhappy with the charge and would like to opt out, we are willing to honor that and remove it from their bill. Most people wouldn't even notice. But for Hardy, it's too little, too late. I think it's taking advantage of customers. They should have benefits, but the company should pay for it. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. The BCSPCA is hoping for some help after a kitten with a leg deformity was born in one of its foster homes. This is nine-week-old Omek, and because her mom came from a home with many cats, interbreeding likely caused Omek's leg to be deformed, and it will need to be amputated. The BCSPCA says Omek is a sweet and affectionate kitten, and because she's so young, learning to walk on three legs shouldn't be difficult. To donate towards her surgery, medication, and treatment, please visit the BCSPCA website. A preliminary report shows a 75% increase in deaths among people experiencing homelessness. That's according to BC's coroner service. Ten years ago, there were about 120 deaths per year in BC among those experiencing homelessness, increasing to 247 deaths last year. More than 90% of those deaths were caused by illicit drugs, and 83% of those who died were men. The highest numbers came from Vancouver, followed by Surrey and Victoria. Canadian endometriosis patients say they spend years fighting for a proper diagnosis and only then begin their battle for care. 
Global News has revealed some are so desperate they're leaving the country for treatment and paying their own expenses. As Jamie Maraca reports, advocates are turning to federal leaders to fix the problem quickly. Colby Morley says for almost two decades she was ignored by doctors. Honestly, it goes back to being like 14 and having a lot of pain and going to the emergency room and no one ever knowing what's wrong with me and being told it's in my head, it's stress. It wasn't until last year the now 33-year-old was diagnosed with endometriosis, a condition where tissue similar to that found in the uterus lining grows outside of it, causing extreme pelvic pain, soreness during sex, heavy menstrual bleeding, cramping, and even infertility. Patients say it's debilitating, missing out on work, school, daily life. In Canada, diagnosis delays have become an unfortunate norm, ranging from 5 to 20 years. And it's costing our health care system close to $2 billion annually. There are common symptoms, but it affects everybody so individually that it really is, that is, I think, part of the part of why it is such a challenging disease to understand and, and to help treat. Advocates say education and funding should be a federal priority. And while Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos agreed, he couldn't provide any specific commitments. We would certainly want to continue listening to the, uh, to the patient groups, the researchers, to see how we can uh, strengthen even more both our investments and the outcomes for, for patients. In 2020, the U.S. doubled annual federal research funding for endometriosis. And two years before that, the Australian government published its plan to increase awareness, education and management of the chronic disease. A private member's motion calling on the Canadian government to do something similar here was created in March, but it hasn't resulted in any action. Morley, who had laparoscopic surgery in February to confirm her diagnosis, says she's done putting her life on hold and won't be waiting for Ottawa to take action. Instead, she plans to leave Canada to get further treatment. I'll do anything to get my quality of life back. Willing to pay out of pocket for the relief she should be able to access at home for free. Jamie Morocker, Global News, Toronto. Still to come, who says politics can be boring? Every time it rains, it rains, pennies from heaven, I mean peanuts. The bizarre race for Vancouver mayor back in 1974, when one of the candidates was nuts. And dirty deeds done in the deep, why these fishermen are now facing charges. New research suggests the ecosystem is still feeling the effects of a mine tailings pond spill eight years later. The Mount Polly mine spilled 25 million cubic meters of waste when the tailings pond collapsed back in 2014. Most of it flowed to the bottom of Quinell Lake, the third deepest in North America. That limited the initial environmental impact. Most thought the pollution, which includes high concentrations of copper, would just stay on the bottom. But researchers at UBC have since found the tailings get churned up every winter and flow down the Quinell River. That extends the ecosystem effects over several years. Still some of the most astonishing video of an environmental disaster we've ever seen in BC. Uh, it gets me every time I see it, obviously. Let's have a look at weather now. Lots of sunshine mm -hmm. out there and it just keeps rolling on, although the mornings are quite crisp. 
Yes, it's definitely turning to be more feeling more like fall. That's for sure. Despite the fact that we're continuing with this record breaking drought, Chris. So uh, temperatures tonight will also be chilly. You can expect a bit of a patchy fog in through the morning hours in the interior, but lots of sunshine and we still have no significant rain in the forecast. Here's a look at the temperatures from today. By the way, we have some new graphics. I hope you like them. 16 degrees in Vancouver by the water, but in the interior, low 20s to mid 20s. And we saw mid 20s out through the East Fraser Valley as well today and we'll likely see a similar range again tomorrow but definitely cooler overnight here's a look at the overnight low dropping down to nine degrees but some areas may make it down to about eight uh, we are expecting a bit of cloud cover on friday and there may be a weak front that moves across the region on monday but overall as i mentioned no significant rain in the forecast the dominant pattern is really this upper level ridge that is just weakening anything that tries to make its way in or diverting it well to the north of us the North Coast, though, isn't getting impacted. You can see that by the rainfall there. But otherwise, every other part of the province is expecting sunshine. Now, temperatures, as we well know, with the nights getting longer, will cool off. And that will bring in that fog. Look at Merritt dropping down to 2 degrees, for example. And for Vancouver Island, overnight lows down to 6. But look at Port Alberni, a huge range from 3 degrees in the morning to 26 degrees in the afternoon. These are well above seasonal temperatures for this time of year from anywhere from 6 to 12 degrees. Uh, so there you go, 19 degrees by the water, 25 degrees out through the Fraser Valley and up through the House Sound regions tomorrow afternoon. We may see a bit of cloud cover on Friday and again on Monday with cooler conditions. But as I mentioned, still no rain in the forecast, which is, in my opinion, so great, but also so scary. Here's a look at tonight's Central Windows weather window coming to you from Comox. Thank you to Glenn Holverson for that one. Beautiful shot of some cirrus cloud off in the distance as the sun is setting. Love to hang out in the Comox Courtney area. Beautiful shot. Thanks very much, Christy. Well, the two competitive fishermen who appear to have been caught red-handed cheating at a tournament are now facing criminal charges. We got weights and fish. He needs to be prosecuted. Do you have anything to say, Jake? You I got video. I'm just saying. You got anything to say? In video that generated international headlines, 42-year-old Jacob Runyon and 35-year-old Chase Kaminsky were allegedly caught stuffing weights inside fish they'd caught while competing in a walleye fishing tournament on Lake Erie. They've now been charged with cheating, attempted grand theft, possessing criminal tools, and unlawful ownership of wild animals. The prosecutor's office says the felonies are punishable by up to 12 months in prison and up to $2,500 in fines. It's like the weirdest story. Although Squire has something even stranger for us later, but. Well, that's true. <laughs> but cheating and fishing, come on. Come on now. Come I cheating, caught a fish this big. Time. There is a lot of money in those fishing competitions, but that does not condone cheating. Exaggerating, yes. Cheating, no. <laughs> that's right, you can exaggerate a fish story, <laughs> but you can't cheat in a fish tournament. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. The uh, Canucks start their uh, season tonight against one of the most dangerous teams in hockey, the Edmonton Oilers. They're a, a scoring machine, and and they're they're going to challenge every person in this room. This is the kind of thing Bruce Boudreau was worried about for his team—an opening night Connor McDavid magic move like that one. And speaking of Squire's strange story coming up, the nut who ran for mayor back in 1974, the new documentary showcasing Vancouver's most bizarre election.
Even though it's a short preseason, it feels like forever waiting for the season to start, and Canucks Nation gets their wish tonight. Yeah, because the exhibition games are, for the most part, pretty dull. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost curtain time for the Vancouver Canucks. Season begins in a few minutes, 7 o'clock hour time in Edmonton. Not an easy team to start against. The Oilers are considered a Stanley Cup contender this season now that they've upgraded their net mining from Mike Smith to Jack Campbell, and they have another forward for teams to worry about in rookie Dylan Holloway, who had a great preseason. Vancouver is going in with a relatively healthy lineup, minus Ilya Mikheyev and Tyler Myers. As we said yesterday, Quinn Hughes and Brock Besser are expected to play, and Bruce Boudreaux knows every one of his guys has to be ready because the Oilers, especially their forwards, can cause you a lot of problems. I'm well aware of the challenge. I mean... Uh... Uh, they're a, a scoring machine, and and they're they're going to challenge every person in this room. And so, I mean, it's uh, we know what we're up against. We know that they're at home. We know they're going to be all geared up to go. I mean, it's a it's a daunting situation, but we're going to give it our best shot. A week ago, the Canucks beat the Oilers 5-4 in an exhibition game in Abbotsford. And even though there were a lot of NHLers in that game, and it was a spirited affair. Bruce Boudreaux says it's nothing compared to what you'll see tonight. I think all preseason games, uh, uh, like, uh, are a lot different than the regular season. And no matter how you look at it, no matter if you're watching it and you're thinking, wow, they're all skating really hard, that looks like regular season stuff. When it comes to regular season, everything's 20% more than what they thought. Uh, the biggest difference in now in the first 10 games, in my mind, is the crispness of passes and everything else. Uh, but uh, as far as the, the pace, the pace will definitely be much faster uh, than it was. Bruce Boudreaux is also one win away from a milestone. He has won 599 games as an NHL head coach. The next one obviously is 600. When he does that, he'll be the 22nd coach to reach that number of wins all time. You know, I honest to God don't think about it, but if we if we got it, I'd be really happy because that means we won the game. And that's where it would be more, I'd feel more for the win than it would be for the number. Carey Price getting a big ovation before Montreal and Toronto's game tonight. The traditional battle between two very old rivals. It's uh, magic from Mitch Marner right in front of the Michael Bunting. First goal of the game, one nothing. Cole Caulfield, they expect big things from him this year. Filling the net, and he does it here. Nice shot. He has two. It's 2-2 Montreal in the third with Toronto. Uh, we were all surprised to see video of Nathan Rourke throwing the football yesterday at Lions practice without a walking boot on his injured foot anymore. He isn't running yet. There is still a ways to go to get him playing again, but BC head coach Rick Campbell says this didn't surprise him or the Lions medical staff. We always said this from the beginning. We said from the get-go that there was a path to, if things went right, that he could play again this season. And that so far, the we've we've crossed a lot of those uh, hurdles so far. But uh, we'll just keep uh, ramping up slowly as we go, and we want to make sure we're smart about it, and uh, we'll keep going from there. Women's U-17 World Cup began for Canada against France. This is in India, and this is Annabelle Chukwu. And look at this. Times a run perfectly, makes the move around the keeper, and very, very confidently deposits that ball in the net. 
1-1 would be the final in this one. Canada will play Japan on Saturday. We finished fourth in the 2018 U-17 World Cup. Mo Salah, Liverpool, Glasgow Rangers, Champions League. He came on in the 68th minute and set a record. Fastest hat trick in Champions League history. Goal number one was in the 75th minute. Goal number two was five minutes after that. And goal number three was only one minute after goal number two, which means he scored a hat-trick in the span of six minutes. And Liverpool won it easy, 7-1. There you go. What skill. Okay, thanks a lot, Squire. Coming up, the council candidate who really was nuts next. Jordan Armstrong here now with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Sophie, the experts say a huge drop in gas prices is coming. We'll tell you how much you could save if you wait until tomorrow to fill up. Plus, two convicted animal activists have been sentenced in relation to an incident at a hog farm. Amy Serrano and Nick Schaefer were found guilty this past July of break and enter and mischief. They were part of a protest in 2019 at Excelsior Hog Farm in Abbotsford. At 11, find out how long they'll be spending behind bars. Sophie? All right, well, we'll see you then. Thanks, Jordan. All right, so this Saturday, we're gearing up for the big civic election show, the vote, the tally afterwards, and there are lots of issues that voters have to decide on. But back in 1974, there weren't a lot of issues. <laughs> but there was or a very interesting flies. candidate. Uh, yeah. Actually, this Saturday also at the Western Front is the premiere of the documentary Peanut for Mayor, which looks back almost 50 years ago when Mr. Peanut ran for mayor. We wanted to do the story as well on Mr. Peanut. We thank the people uh, who did the documentary for helping us out. We have some footage here. And thankfully, Mr. Peanut came out of his shell to talk to us about <laughs> it. I just had to throw that in. Every time it rains, it rains. Pennies from heaven. I mean, Peanut. Don't you know? In 1974, a bona fide nut ran for mayor of Vancouver. But this nut wasn't crazy, and neither were the people around him. The Peanut for Mayor campaign was started as an art project, which is something a lot of people might not realize. It wasn't really a political campaign. They wanted to make some kind of artistic statement. I'm not quite sure if people understood that it was an art project. I think people really were just taken back by the fact that a nut was running for mayor. Everyone pretty much knew that incumbent mayor Art Phillips would win the election, so Mr. Peanut became the most interesting part of the campaign. When he signed up for the election, he made the front page of the Vancouver Sun. There haven't been many ripples in the Vancouver election campaign so far. That's the official campaign song of Mr. Peanut, an election curiosity, but a spark of life and interest on the hustings. The man encased in the shell is 27-year-old artist Vincent Trassoff. The idea for, for Running Mr. Peanut for mayor was my colleague, John Mitchell, who was also campaign manager and was a, was a spokesperson. John needed to be the spokesman because Mr. Peanut never said a word. Looked like three little boys sitting in a sand pit, all, all fighting over, over uh, you know, a blade of grass and a stone. Listen. Oddly enough, Planters Peanuts never minded Vincent inside a reasonable facsimile of their mascot running for mayor. And the three weeks on the campaign trail got interest from all over North America. The project got a lot of publicity, yeah. It was, 
It got a lot of national news coverage. How do you think of Mr. Peanut? Oh, I think he's neat. <laughs> Something different anyway. Unique, different. You think you'd vote for him? Hell yes. <laughs> and it even got noticed in a lot of art circles, right? Like even Andy Warhol was aware of the project, which is kind of interesting. There were no real serious issues of that campaign. In, in effect, the political arena went into the art arena. But some of Mr. Peanut's opponents didn't like those two worlds colliding. I think your entry into this race has made a mockery out of our civic elections, and I have to say that. And Keith, I'm sorry, you're part of this by in inviting this man here. He's a candidate. Mr. Peanut got about 4% of the vote that year. But 48 years later, there's a documentary about the campaign and a lot of great memories. You know, it's one of the major artist performances in the history of Canadian performance art. I think we're going to have to sit back for a moment here, Keith. I think we've been preempted. That wouldn't so, be cool. I can't tell you how much I hope that happens on Saturday <laughs> behind us. It's all going to seem so normal on Saturday. We hope you'll join us. Our coverage starts at 8 p.m. Uh, that's Saturday. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good night, all.